You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. Hi, I'm JR. And I'm Simon. It's the Blue Box Christmas party. Woohoo! And how many of us are here? <laughs> Can you hear the echo, folks? Okay, so because it's the Blue Box Christmas party and there's only two of us here, I've brought some special guests along. Right, people will know this voice. <laughs> That's Despicable Lee. Couldn't come to a Blue Box Christmas party without Despicable Lee being here. No, no. no. And also, there's a certain Australian twang to that. Really? Yeah. Is that where he is at the moment? Apparently so. Whereabouts? Perth. That's in Wales, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Also, another guest I've brought along to the Blue Box Christmas party, Mark Cockramus. Well, don't just stand there, man. Get it out! Get it out! Hey! I'm trying not to <clears throat> laugh. Marcus Cockramus. Nice of you to come along, Marcus. And also... And this is a bit wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey, because we didn't invent a name for this guest until next week's podcast. Mm. But here is Sid Brett. (laughs) 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 Do you know, my voice is going that way over the years. That's from all the radio you do, is that right? Yeah, yeah. What are we here to talk about, Simon? Christmas! But... Specifically, what are we here to talk about? I did that irritating thing where people miss out the tea completely. There's kind of this Christmas thing. Oh, yeah. Christmas. I know no one says Christmas, but there's... Some people say Xmas. You know, that really grinds my goat. Yeah. And that is not a euphemism. There you go. I have to get that word in there somewhere every week. Mm. It's expected of me these days. It is. Okay. Uh, Let's do an email, shall we? Dear Blue Boxers, I just heard your Season 12 podcast. Simon was asking how often someone looks at things from ground level. I used to do this quite a lot until I was thrown out of the top shop changing rooms. (laughs) I liked Season 12. Sarah was lovely and Miss Winters was a dominatrix. I liked Betton too. She was very tiny. There weren't that many girls in Season 12 really, but Benny Hill was on at the time, so I watched that a lot on my own. Your friend... Sharak Jizz. Always good to start with a nice, serious email, eh? Yep, yep. We've got one more email, so we'll do that now, and then we'll get into tonight's topic, shall we? Yep, okay. As soon as it's Christmas. <laughs> Gerard Gray says, Hello, Blue Boxers. Everybody calls us Blue Boxers. They do, don't they? I've it's like all... they can see what we're wearing. Speak, <laughs> speak for yourself. <clears throat> Gerard Gray says, Hello, Blue Boxers. I'm a bit behind on your podcasts. That's not a euphemism, is it? No. I'm a bit behind on your podcasts, but I'm enjoying them as usual. The Season 12 review was wonderful. It really was a special year for Doctor Who. Just read about Stephen Moffat's thoughts on a female doctor. It's only a matter of time now. I don't see any problem with this at all, especially after seeing Michelle Gomez and her brilliant portrayal of the Master. 
I'm sure a lot of fans won't be happy about it, but you can't please everyone. Doctor Who has always been about change, and this is why I love it. Thanks, guys. Here, here. Gerard Gray. We've got our topic for tonight is actually, well, we're supposed to be previewing the Christmas special, okay. Last Christmas. Mm-hmm. Actually, last time we mentioned that, and you gave me the impression you didn't like the song. I'm not a fan. <clears throat> I, not don't, like... I don't think it's bad. I just don't like it. Thing is, if I, I like Wham stuff, I like the really early stuff like Bad Boys. No, you're kidding. Yeah, because at least it's kind of... High camp? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> mm. I it all say... started going wrong with Club Tropicana. That's where it went wrong. Drinks are free. Yeah. Fun and sunshine. There's enough for everyone. All that's missing is the sea. I miss the leather jackets. That didn't come back till Faith, did it? Oh, yeah, that's true. Mm. My, but that second album, what was the second album called? What uh, one? Um, yeah. Was it big, was it? Was it big? Could have been. Something like that. First one was... Fantastic. Fantastic. The second one would have been big then, wouldn't it? Mm. Then he did two albums and then the compilation. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. First album was Bad Boys, Club Tropicana, Wham Rap. And what's the other song on the first album? The other single. There was four singles off each of the first two albums. It was Love Machine on it. It wasn't. It wasn't a single, wasn't it? No, that was a B side. Might have been. Sister had it on twelve inch. We digress. Yeah, we're trying to remember something. There's a reason we're digressing. Is there? (laughs) Yeah, there's a big reason we're digressing. (laughs) But then the second album was Wake Me Up Before You Go Go. Mm. Freedom. I can't remember. Yeah. He's, he makes his best records when he's unhappy. Listen Without Prejudice is a brilliant album. Yeah, but I think right from that second Wham album up to Listen Without Prejudice is his golden era. Really? Mm. Yeah, I think so. Freedom is a fantastic song. And actually, Wake Me Up Before You Go Go, as cheesy as it is, it's the right kind of cheesy. I think so. Uh, yeah, I, I can appreciate that. It's. I don't think, as I say, I don't think it's bad. I just, it doesn't, it's a bit like Queen. I was thinking about Queen the other day because I'm not a big Queen fan, but there's a time and a place for them. There's a theme here, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) You said it, I didn't. Now, I was trying to think of an analogy for Queen, and it's like going around to a friend's house who's got really bad decor, really bad taste in decor, but But they throw really good parties. All right, okay. Well, uh, buying a Queen album, mm. like a great, like if you bought all the greatest hits collections, because it's like volume one and volume two, right? And mm. they're both two discs, I think, as well. Mm. So you'd end up with four CDs. Yep. It's a bit like getting a great big box of Quality Street. Too much, really. And, you know, there's only really three or four flavours you really like. But there's, but, you know, all the rest of it's okay. But mm. it's just those three or four flavours that you really look forward to. Yeah, yeah. So there you go, we've analogised Queen twice. And the reason we're talking about Queen and Wham is because we're supposed to be doing a preview of Last Christmas. Yes. And the thing is, <laughs> we don't do spoilers, do we, Simon? Uh, we try not to. So we don't really have anything to talk about. Whoa. So until next week then, I was JR. All right. And I'm, I, I'm bemused. I've got, in front of us, I've got some quotes from the TV guides. Mm-hmm. which will give us a flavour of the Christmas special without spoiling anything that isn't already out in the public domain. Ah, fair yeah. Because 
I don't know if you're aware of this, and I really should whisper this, so I'm going to whisper it, but finally, Omega is going to turn up. Did you know that? No. Well, that's because I'm talking porkies. Hey, good. All right, but there is one thing we didn't know that we do know now, thanks to this, and it is, well, as what's on TV, guide, Mm -hmm. put it, Michael Troughton stars as a scientist on a base that's under attack by sleepers and dream crabs. Oh. <laughs> wow. Really? Mm. Well, what do we know? The base is at the North Pole, right? Yes. And presumably that is the reason for Santa's involvement, because North Pole is traditionally the home of Santa Claus, right? Okay, yes. And the reason we're calling him Santa Claus, as opposed to Father Christmas, is because... That's what they called him in the credits at the end of uh, the last episode. Yes, yeah. Which the name of which escapes me. Death in Heaven. Mm. God, can't believe I did that. I know, that. yeah, it's your age. All right, so Michael Trouton's a scientist on a base at the North Pole, mm. but so far, so Waters of Mars. Mm. So I'm getting a slight Waters of Mars vibe. Okay. And it's under attack by, and it says here, sleepers and dream crabs. So that's two separate things, right? Sleepers and dreamers. Is that a lyric or is that a famous? I don't know. It sounds like a famous lyric from a song. Probably by Wham. It's probably on Big. Yeah, okay. I'll mull that over my head. It will come to me. It is a pop pop song. All right. I believe you. Mm. Sounds 60s to me. Maybe. If that's any... Are we doing why I've got Kate Bush and Tears for Fears in my head. I don't know why, but that's probably because they're always in my head. Um, Kate Bush is on one shoulder telling you one thing, and Tears for Fears are on the other shoulder telling yeah, you... Yeah, yeah. Isabel, shut up. Yeah. <clears throat> Woman in chains. <laughs> it's going to be that kind of a podcast. It is. It it's is a party fantastic. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, a bit of Despicable Lee, just to remind us that we're supposed to be having fun. We are having fun, aren't we? We are having fun. Okay. So it's a not-so-secret Santa in this episode, then? Well, we'll come to that. I said about we should have done a secret Santa. Well, you and me? Yeah. Well, there's only two of us here. I know. I just bought something that we want. Doctor Who top trumps? Yes. Sleepers and dream crabs. Are we yeah. going to extemporise on the notion that there's the word and between those two things? Oh. You see what I'm saying here? It sounds like, assuming that sleepers and dream crabs are like aliens. Ah, and the dog's just walked in. Hi. Assuming that sleepers and dream crabs are aliens of some description, monsters, then it sounds like there are two different varieties in this episode. Okay. And the BBC have put some pictures out, right? Okay. So I know what the dream crabs look like. Oh, do you? Yeah. Okay. I've obviously haven't looked hard enough. Well, this is... I've seen Michael want... Troughton's outfit, because he tweeted it, I think. Hmm. That was one of the pictures that the BBC put out. Oh, right. Okay. And they do this every time now. They put out like a dozen, a couple of dozen pictures, like a slideshow mm. on the website. Yeah. And that was one of those pictures. And two or three of those pictures had... I've had to tell you this now. Dog's come back in. That dog's returned. It has. Sit! No, that didn't. Oh, yes, it did. Very good. <laughs> this is making for great radio. It is. 
So the these dream crab things, a bit like the face hugger in Alien, but blue. Oh, sort of a little bit like that, mm. without the sort of tendrils going around the side of the head. It looks like a sort of blue alien mask type thing on somebody's head. Mm. But then I'm thinking, right, that's the dream crabs, right? That must be the dream crabs. Mm. And presumably there are legs somewhere because they're called crabs, right? So the sleepers must presumably be something else. Mm. Mm. So, so something hibernating. I don't know, because from this one single sentence, what I'm extrapolating is two alien species with a symbiotic relationship. Okay. Dream crabs, right? Mm -hmm. So dream crabs presumably either feed off your dreams or cause you to dream or something like that. Sleepers, they're the ones that put you to sleep and thus the dream crabs can feed off your dreams or whatever. Mm -hmm. So are these two alien species who have some kind of symbiotic relationship? It sounds like a very, very good... Unless... Unless it turns out that it's just one alien unless species. Unless they code names for... Something else. Aliens that we already know. Why would you think that? I don't know. North Pole base. That's why I'm thinking that. You're thinking Ice Warriors? I am. Why are you thinking Ice Warriors? I don't know. I really wouldn't think Ice Warriors if I were you. You're only setting yourself up for a disappointment. Oh, no, I'm not. Well, after the last effort, I'm not really. <laughs> I'm not so sure. Mind you, it might be nice to get Stephen Moffat onto the case. Mind you, I don't know anything about the episode other than that one sentence, so I don't suppose there's any reason, really. But, no... Ice Warriors didn't really have anything to do with the North Pole. That first story was just set in the English countryside because you know, it was the Third Ice Age and the ice had encroached upon the English countryside, hadn't it? Oh, right, yeah, yeah. So, and the Ice Warrior there, well, they only call them the Ice Warriors because they've been buried in the ice. Mm. But they don't actually come from an icy place. No, you're absolutely right. Because if it's they never did... occurred to me. Yeah, if they did come from an icy place... Being buried in the ice wouldn't cause to put them to sleep for 5,000 years. No. So the ice warriors actually come from long in the past when Mars was presumably a lot warmer. Hmm. So the ice... They're reptiles, after all. I think we had this before. They're reptiles, so they're presumably cold-blooded, so they presumably need warm weather to function. And hot planets like Mars. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, if you're thinking North Pole equals ice warriors, I think you're way off the beaten track. Okay. Plus, of course, Stephen Moffat notoriously hates the Ice Warriors, and Mark Gatiss had to nag him for about three years to let really? him tell the story. Yeah, you must have known this, didn't you? I didn't know that. I don't get. I don't get invited to the same parties as you do. Okay, well, well, this was in the interviews in Doctor Who magazine. Oh, was it? So, okay. <laughs> yeah, Mark Gatiss had to nag Stephen Moffat to let him do an Ice Warrior story. So I can't see Stephen Moffat doing one himself. Mm. But moving on from that. We've got a handful of quotes that I've taken out of these articles from the Radio Times and What's on TV. And uh, Stephen Moffat has said, I sense that the very people who think they might hate this, presumably he's talking about the fact that we know going in that Santa Claus is going to be in it. Yep. He says, they won't hate it at all. Of all the Christmas specials I've done, it's the one most like the Paradigm Doctor Who episode. Oh, Based on the siege, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And of course, his previous Christmas specials have all been in 
They've all been far less like Doctor Who and far more like a sort of traditional Christmas fairy tale type mm. thing. Yeah, yeah, sidestep from Doctor Who itself. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Doctor the Widow in the Wardrobe's at the extreme. Mm. But even if you look at the Snowman, Time of the Doctor, they all very much have a sort of gentle fairy tale quality. Mm. And mm. none of them are alien invasions. Well, this one's like a, well, it looks to me like it's going to be an alien invasion. The thing from another world. Mm. Well, in fact, as he puts it, he puts it, it's The Thing meets Miracle on 34th Street, the movie we've all been waiting for. It's certainly, he says, the strangest bloody thing I've ever written. <laughs> oh, no. Well, it's coming strange. from Stephen Moffat. What's that film, Santa Claus versus the Aliens? Have you ever seen that? Uh, I can quite happily say I haven't. You haven't? Oh. I've seen bits of it. Well, I'm it... just wondering if it was inspiration for this. Santa Claus versus the Aliens? Yeah. Oh, is it versus the Martians? I can't remember the exact. Oh yeah. Oh no, That's Santa Claus not... versus the Flying Saucers. No, yeah, is that... isn't it Earth versus the Flying Saucers and Santa Claus versus the Martians? When you're right the first time. Oh it? yeah, probably, probably. I was talking myself know. out of these things. I don't know. I couldn't say. It all sounds a bit <laughs> too B movie for me. <laughs> well, so there you go. Stephen Moffat is. Well, it looks to me like this is going to be. A kind of fairly generic Doctor Who based under siege story, except it's going to be under siege, not from traditional, I don't know, reptiles with guns or something, but there's something just a little bit more Stephen Moffaty than mm, that. Mm. So, uh, I mean, they've already said before that there's going to be, well, um, Jenna Coleman was on. BBC Breakfast or something like that, just before Death in Heaven went out. Mm. And they asked her about the Christmas special, and she said that quite a bit of it is to do with dreams. Something's got to explain the existence of Santa Claus for a start. Well, yes. Mm. Maybe. I'm really not sure now, because, you know, I said it could be, this could be the alien our myth of Santa Claus is based on, mm. or else this could be... Uh, what was the other thing I said? I said, this could be like aliens have taken our myth of Santa Claus and created their own proper Santa Claus. Yeah. Like with a Titanic in space or yes, what have yes. you. But no. In fact, let's keep with Stephen Moffat's quotes for the moment. He says... Uh, he says, Santa is written in properly, in a science fiction way, into Doctor Who. And Peter Capaldi says, if I can find the quote. Uh, I don't know. Uh, he says, kids will be glad to know that Santa will remain intact by the end of the show. He's not a Santa robot or Santa alien or anything sci-fi like that. He's the real, genuine Santa Claus. Did you see the clip that was on Children in Need? No, no, I avoided it. <clears throat> Did you really? Mm. Well, that was a waste of your time, because I'm about to tell you about it now. Come on, then. No, I don't mind. Well, it takes place on a rooftop, mm. and Santa Claus and two of his elves, who are Nathan McMullen as Wolf and Dan Starkey as Ian, <laughs> have crashed onto the roof, Clara comes out to investigate what's going on, finds Santa Claus there, and she tells him, you know, you're just a bloke dressed up as Santa. Mm. There's no such thing as Santa. And, of course, there's Nick Frost. He tells her, in no uncertain terms, yes, I am Santa. There is such a thing as Santa. 
And then the doctor turns up and throws open the TARDIS doors and says, Clara, come quick, you know, got to rush off and do something. And so she goes off with the doctor and there's sort of like this parting moment where Santa and the doctor sort of have a few words and give each other a look. Mm. Like Mm. as if, well, like the Robin Hood thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Doctor and Santa Claus are uh, obviously in this episode. They're going to be uh, rubbing up against one another in not quite the right way. <laughs> well, that's what you want, isn't it? Yeah, I guess so. That could be a lot of fun. Mm, mm. And as long as they don't take it too far, like they did in that one scene in the Robin Hood episode. Well, there's a Scrooge element as well to um, the Doctor as well, isn't there? Yeah, and this, could, and this could bring that out of him in a really funny way for Christmas. Where, the, where Matt Smith would give him a big hug. Mm. And I tell you what, the kids could love that. could end up loving that. And it's on earlier as well. It's on at 6.15. Oh, really? Rather than good. 8.30 or anything silly like that. Good, good, good. And oh. it'll be quite dark and scary by the look of it from the trailer. If there's face-hugging things, then certainly. That's yeah. Mm. Oh, it looks mm. like it. But yeah, so the kids will get to see one of their heroes, the Doctor, grumping up against Santa, and Santa winning, quite frankly. And the Doctor ending up probably looking a little bit silly for not for not buying into Santa, mm, sort mm. of thing. I don't know. <laughs> oh, you know, we're talking crap here. By the time people listen to this, it's only going to be a few days away, and they'll be laughing at us. Mm-hmm. Still, what can you say? Oh, I'm glad about they're going to keep Santa intact. I, w- I wondered whether he was going to do kind of a listen type thing where, you know, you made your own mind up by the end of as exactly who he was. Or maybe you maybe you will. I think you, I think there'll probably be an element of that. Mm, mm. I, if it was me, if I was writing it, I think I would. I think what you'd do is you keep Santa intact, but leave just that tiny bit of ambiguity so that at the end, if you want to believe in Santa, you can. Mm. But if you want not to believe in Santa, it's open to that interpretation. That wouldn't be the primary interpretation, but that interpretation would be open. It'll be nice is if there's that <clears throat> that thing, that element of choice in there, like you have in the Polar Express, where you've got the bells, where the bells on Santa's sleigh, where if you believe you can hear them, and if you don't believe you can't hear them. I've not seen the Polar Express. No, it, it's. I've seen bits of it. I've seen yeah. enough of it to know what it's like. But I've it's that seen uncanny it. valley thing going on. But I love the story. And also, I was too late for it. Yeah. And, you know, don't have kids the right age to have picked up on that yet. No, no. But one day, presumably. I'm taking my kids on the train. There's a Polar Express oh, really? train. We've got the DVD on the shelf at home, so mm. it's not like I'm going to avoid it. There's it's a lot of nice stuff in there. Yeah, I can I think. imagine. Well, enjoy put it, it. Put another way, sit down with the kids and watch it. It's great. Yeah. But try to pull it apart and there's not a great deal going on. The book's better. Oh, really? Beautiful book. Yeah, sometimes books don't transfer too well. No, it's very accurate, though. The set pieces that are in the book are in the film, and they're done beautifully. But you've got, as I say, you've got this Uncanny Valley thing where you've got Tom Hanks playing loads of parts. Yeah. And they all look slightly like him, and he does his over-the-top thing. You know, he's not got the warmest of voices. No matter what, he's got this nasal voice. Yeah. Um, But there's a lot of nice bits in there. Actually, Tom Hanks became a much better actor when he stopped playing the sort of friendly parts that kind of made yeah, up his early yeah, career. Yeah, I mean, I suppose his big, big, big success early days was big. Yeah, and all the splash. 
Yeah, Big was a much bigger success than Splashdown, I think. Was it? I think so. Mm. Well, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> Big, when I think Tom Hanks early, Big is always a th- the f- first film that pops into my head. Mm. Mm. But then after he did, I suppose maybe Saving Private Ryan was where it changed for him. And he started taking on more serious parts. Yeah. Have you seen Cloud Atlas yet? No. I'll be fascinated to hear what you think. Is that... I could not get a grasp on the film. I felt really thick afterwards. Really? Because I thought I'm missing something here because I couldn't get a grasp on it. Well, it's probably crap. It may be. It's the Wachowski brothers, isn't it? It's um... Of course. Oh, yeah, but their other films are crap. Matrix isn't. I don't like The Matrix. I think it's dreadful. The first one. Yeah, yeah, really. Oh. Yeah, I don't. I think they're massive. I think they're like Quentin Tarantino, ridiculously overrated. It's like I would go back to that Donnie Darko thing where you watch the original, and I loved it, and then they bring out a director's cut, and you realise what he was actually trying to do, and you think, oh, I actually liked it when I didn't know what he was trying to do. Well, same, <clears> and it's the same with the Matrix in some respects because when it was a single spoiler. film, yeah, absolutely, yeah, but mm. then. I, Matrix is one of the performances just dreadful. Yeah, it's awful. It's Keanu Reeves. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's one of those films where here's a zeitgeist. It just happens. It's really lucky, and it just happens to be the expensive sci-fi movie that comes out and deals with the internet in the way it does. Yeah, and happens to be the film that uses bullet time for the first time. And yeah, yeah. Mm. and well, even then, not really sort of, but I mean. There were already things like Crouching Tiger out there before yeah. The Matrix. Yeah. I think that was the year before, wasn't it? Mm. And yeah, so, it, it, you know, the, the the potential was already there. It's just that The Matrix happened to be the one that hit it, didn't it? Sure, and it's actually, yeah, it's fascinating you say that because it kind of all coincided with the when DVD really kicked off as well, wasn't yeah. it? And so people it was could, the film made for that format. Yeah, yeah. And people mm. could actually stop these things and go through frame picture by frame picture, and impress yeah. themselves with it. Commentaries. I don't... Yeah, do you know what? I actually bought that on American Import just to get the extra commentary on it. From really? Carrie Ann Moss. Yeah. Wow. I know. More fool you. Well, yeah, I was a single, money to burn. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it didn't seem right buying a DVD, which you could get for the same price, but would have more on it. I mean, don't <laughs> get me wrong. The Matrix is tremendous fun, but it it just seems to me to scratch the surface of everything it wants to. The Wachowski brothers so shallow. Have you ever seen Bound? No. It's like no. one of the shallowest films you'll ever see. And I can imagine Cloud Atlas is the same, quite frankly. I just find their films incredibly shallow. It's all surface. It's all about it it kind of it felt it felt like it was trying to be clever. Yeah. It really did. That's it. It it felt like it was trying to be clever for a not very clever audience. Mm. And so mm. it's just giving the impression of being clever. Bound was exactly the same. Bound was kind of a modern film noir type thing. Mm. But it's about two lesbians, right? So, of course, you know, one of the things they sold it on was the big lesbian scene in the middle. So there's two naked women having sex. And then they go off and do like a heist. Mm. And it's like... Yeah, okay, but really, the only reason half the people are going to see this is because of the lesbian love scene in the middle of it. And the heist itself, it's kind of, if you're immersed enough in heist movies, you can pretty much join the dots on a heist, right? Mm. And if you're going to do something with a heist, you've got to do something really clever that doesn't involve just 
grading everything so it looks slightly blue and sticking a lesbian scene in the middle of your movie. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It is mm. ridiculously shallow. My ongoing, I'd probably watch the Animatrix more than the Matrix, which was the collection of animated films they did, mm. which had all different styles and some of that was gorgeous. <clears throat> but that probably, you're probably right, that probably finds the right level where it, it behaves yeah, like a cartoon. Yeah. Mm. And you get the the history of the, how the Matrix was created, things like that. And it's, it's a manga. Mm. And then there's a CGI episode, which is very pretty. Looks like a video game intro. Um, and some kind of film noir. Yeah, black yeah. and white stuff as well. So that's worth watching. And But then they had very little to do with that, I guess. I guess they kind of... Probably not, no. They probably just said yes to things. Yes. And um, I'm assuming these are all shorts, so... Yeah, yeah. So you don't have to spend two hours. With no, it. and it, what's great about it is you'd probably find it in a bargain bin or two here and there. Yeah, maybe I should look it up. Yeah. I'll lend it to you. Well, the mate. So the Matrix. <laughs> it is great fun though. Mm-hmm. But to be honest, you have to turn your brain off because, like we said, it's just pretending to be clever rather than actually being clever. Hmm. In fact, in some ways, it reminds me of Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who with that sort of multi-level thing mm. going on. Mm. But, I don't know, it just kind of does it in such an obvious way. But maybe Stephen Moffat would uh, be better off doing his stuff in a more obvious way. Maybe more people would like it then. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. We'll come back to Stephen Moffat in a while. Yeah. But should we come back to Last Christmas first? Yes. Or okay. are we going to talk about Quentin Tarantino? Because... Uh, I don't think any more highly of Quentin Tarantino than the Wachowski brothers. I find him just as shallow. Yeah. It's like Reservoir Dogs again. It's like, it's like, just take a heist movie and join the dots. Early, I was in my early 20s and it was great. You went around people's houses, had a few beers and watched it. And it kind of had that yeah, it cool you. thing going exactly. on, Exactly. Yeah. Both the Wachowski brothers movies and Quentin Tarantino movies, it's like, if you put every single character in there, it's really cool, man. Then all the people who like to think they're really cool can appreciate how cool everybody is in these movies. But actually, Reservoir Dogs is exactly like Bound, except instead of having a lesbian scene, it's got lots of really, really bad language and a couple of bits of really nasty violence. And that's all Quentin Tarantino's movies, really. They just join the dots. Sort of. I love my favourite... Tarantino movie. I, I can't even remember how much involved how involved he was. Was True Romance? He wrote it, didn't he? He wrote it, and then um, Ridley Scott's brother that's, Tony that's probably got a lot it. down to the fact that I fancy the pants off of uh, Patricia Arquette. So really, mm. uh, I prefer her sister. Really? Oh, what? Rosanna. That's yeah. pretty. You can Susan. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well there, there you, you go. go. <laughs> 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 but yeah, Quentin Tarantino. I mean, they're all great fun, but seriously. I couldn't. I could not watch a Quentin Tarantino movie or a Wachowski Brothers movie, and then afterwards sit down and uh, I couldn't write a review of it. No, and say no. these are the great things about this because I don't know whether you've read my reviews, but I like to when I do a review, I like to say what something's about. Mm. And the fact is, Quentin Tarantino movies and Wachowski Brothers movies—they're not about anything. Apart from these are my favourite bits from movies I've seen before, and there's a bit of blood to go with it. Especially in that respect, they're they're experienced. Then you watch them, and they they're a roller coaster they, ride. Yeah, they're there for that period of time that you're watching it, and there's and not much it. left afterwards. Yeah, 
Exactly. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Which there's a time and place for that stuff. Oh yeah, absolutely there is. Mm. Yes. Oh, no question, yes. And I'm certainly not ragging on anybody who does like these things. You know, it's perfectly... But I would say, somebody who says Reservoir Dogs is one of the best movies ever made and then rags on something like Big, I'd say Big's got a lot more going for it than Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. Actually, it's about something. Mm. It's great fun and it's about something, whereas Reservoir Dogs is great fun and it reminds you of a load of other movies that you probably prefer. <laughs> I did prefer Reservoir Dogs to Pulp Fiction, though, personally. I just like, I preferred the feeling of it. Mm. Oh, Pulp Fiction it's had is... had a bit more edge to it. With Pulp Fiction is Reservoir Dogs. With a budget? No, Reservoir Dogs <laughs> pretending to be clever. Oh, I see, yes. Yeah. Just like Matrix was bound pretending to be clever. Mm. Mm. So, yeah. Anyway, let's get back to Doctor Who, shall we? Just one one thing. What you yeah, what on. you do get with Tarantino's people say, oh, "I love that bit where." Yeah, I love exactly. that bit where. Yeah. But if you actually ask them to say what it was about the movie itself as mm. an entity mm. that they liked, they'd only be able to point at the bits. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You can tell it's a Christmas podcast. It's like enthusing <laughs> about a boxing match. Yeah, quite. He hits him. Yeah. He falls over. He gets back up again, and he hits him again. Yeah. Right, let's get a few more quotes from people. Should we get a couple of quotes from Nick Frost about Santa Claus? Oh, cool. He's, I'm a big fan. Yeah, Nick Pegg was in it in um, Time Simon and Peg, Peg, Nick yeah. Pegg. Nick Pegg's been I'm in it huge, many times. I'm a huge, huge Spaced fan, so it's kind of that whole big family, which is why I've probably got to think about Jessica Stevens. first time around. Mm. I was too Have old you watched for it, it since? I was too old for it when it was first on, because you really have to be on the cusp of adolescence, really, to really get spaced. Or a nerd. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. And I'm... I was and the age they of, were. I was yeah. the age the characters were when it came yeah, on. Yeah, exactly. So, mm. Whereas I was probably, I don't know, five years older than you, but I yeah. passed that. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not... And I've not... And in spite of appearances <laughs> hosting <laughs> a Doctor Who podcast, I'm not really a nerd. No. So, You've always said you're not a big sci-fi fan, are you? No, and I'm not. I don't think I'm even a Doctor Who geek. I absorb things like... Well, I don't think I even absorb... I was going to say I absorb things like production, but I don't. I don't follow the dates of when things are being filmed. I don't follow production codes. I The thing that I absorb is what the writers are trying to achieve. And the creative process. Yeah, things yeah. like the creative process, yeah. Mm. So I don't think I'm even a nerd over Doctor Who. No. Although, like I said to Matt West on this podcast about six months ago, I could probably name every story in order if you put me, <laughs> if you put me to the test. But I think that's just being immersed in the. In, in defence of space, subject. though, as far as that, the, the whole uh, there's a, an array of characters who are all brilliantly written. Yeah, like I say, I kind of missed it when it was first on. Mm. I like watched one episode and thought this is not appealing to me. Mm. And then came back to it a few years later and thought, yeah, okay, so I'm not the right age for it and it's not pressing my nerd buttons, but I can see what's going on here. And in spite of not being a nerd, as I keep saying, I get most of the references or at least understand what most of the references mm. are kind of saying. Mm. Mm. I definitely went on a journey with the characters through the two series as well. So by the end of the second series, or you know. They're slightly caricatures and that's... Yeah. The biggest problem with it. 
I think that's probably the biggest problem with Simon Pegg's career. Mm. He can't play a real human being. Do you know what I mean? No, I'd be interested to see World's End when he plays a bit of a... Yeah, he's just the same as the others. Is it? Yeah. I've not seen it. Have you not, really? No. I know, exactly the same as the others. Okay. It's the only thing he can do, which is not a complaint, because, you know, lots of great actors, Humphrey Bogart, Mm. just does the one thing, but he does it so well, and it works, and why not? And, you know, those three films, and some of the others, have been great films. I even like things like um, Run, Fat Boy, Run. Yes. I think that's tremendously good fun for what it is. Yeah, it is. I like it. So, Simon, he makes good choices. But then you come to something like Star Trek, and he is the weak link in the Star Trek movie. Yeah, odd casting. Mm, Very odd casting. Doesn't suit it at all. No. Mm. So, Simon Pegg's one of those actors, you've really got to put something in. You've got to put him in something that suits him. But in general, an odd thing with those Star Trek movies, I really like those reboot movies, but that's the thing. It's called a reboot because they're in the storyline, they're actually linking it up to the original timeline. And then they're taking it somewhere different and doing something different with it. Well, I've not seen the second one yet. Oh, I've right, seen okay. the first one one time. Yeah. I know what happens in the second one. You couldn't avoid that when people were talking about it afterwards. No, I, I heard an I heard an interview with JJ Abrams, and um, he was saying about he wasn't a Star Trek fan, and <clears throat> he just wanted to make the films work in their own right. Yeah, and actually, the second one is a really great movie in its own right. Yes, it's only when you compare it it's with only the original. When you, and if you're a fan, and if you've, you're precious about that original storyline because it links to an old storyline and basically yeah. rewrites it, and I don't have a problem with that. I do in as much as it didn't need. If you're going to link up the two, it doesn't. You don't need to necessarily well, I don't know how re- he relate back. It, so yeah. Or did it refer back to the original? Well, it does in as much as it takes elements from the originals. Oh, but it's essentially it's a remake, though. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. In, well, no, I don't have a. Then... It didn't need to be. There's a character reappears from the Tom. original run. Yes. Yeah, we can talk about it. It's oh, big okay. everywhere, yeah. Simon. Okay. Well, I don't know. I don't know whether you've not seen it. Um, and I just think... I mean, well, the in that, that case, warning, it? anybody listening to this who hasn't seen the second Star Trek movie yet and who's intending to watch it at some point in the near future, just rewind this podcast <laughs> about 30 seconds and don't listen to that bit. I just think if they relate back to that character, it pins it down. And not only does it piss off certain fans... But it kind of ties the whole thing down to, you think, oh, is the next movie going to be a remake of Search for Spock? It doesn't have to be, though, because the first movie wasn't a remake of the first Star Trek movie. No, it wasn't. But they brought back the original Spock, didn't they? But I think... To kind of tie the two timelines together. In some ways, I kind of like that, because this is kind of saying, right, um, whatever rules you thought we had for doing Star Trek movies, Mm. you're wrong. We don't have those rules. No. And then, because you don't know what rules they do have, it kind of opens it up to do anything. Whereas I think if they'd have played it really safe and stayed away from doing things like that, Mm. then they'd have kind of been trapped in a sort of new universe where they could never sort of cross over into the old universe. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but they might have scuppered that. Have you heard Shatner might be involved in the next one? Yeah, but then Nimoy was in the first one. Yeah. So it might not necessarily be a problem. Okay. Okay. We shall see. We shall see. I love both films anyway. 
I'm not. I'm not, I try not to be precious about these things. I don't think there's any point. Well, I enjoyed the first one. I did find it just a little bit too. See, J.J. Abrams, all of his stuff that I've seen has don't been... Don't mention lens flares. It's getting really boring. I don't mind the lens flares. I don't mind them either. They're a bit like... Um, it's a bit like using foam in Doctor Who in 1968. They've got yeah. a foam machine. They use it in every story. Live with it. Yeah, I know, and Steadicam. Uh, simulated Steadicam on CGI movies. Yeah, not Steadicam, the opposite. Shaky Cam. Oh, Shaky Cam, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Simulated handheld. Yes. Which, yeah. As far as I'm aware, it's... started with Attack of the Clones, if I remember rightly. That was the one, first one I saw it on. Oh, really? Mm. No, I don't remember. But it's, it's the filmmakers trigger the trade. And actually, the lens flare thing, it's not impact... Well, it shouldn't be impacting upon your enjoyment of the movie. Mm. It should really only be enhancing it. Mm. And if you, as long as you're not using it in every single shot or something mm. ridiculous I, I think like by that. his own admission, he's overused it. But Was it in that trailer for Star Wars that came out last I week? I think there's, there's a, a little brief, bit, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. Millennium Fal- behind the Millennium Falcon, is it? Yeah, yeah. Flips over. But why not? Yeah. I don't why not? It makes it look nice. Yeah. Why would you complain it's about realism. something that makes the picture look nice? Would it do it in the real world? Yes, it would. Yeah. Uh, also, of course, he's making the new Star Wars, or has made, because obviously they filmed, finished filming a while ago now. Mm. He's made it on film instead of on digital media. <laughs> Did you know this? I guessed he would. Yeah. Because I know that a lot of the effects he's avoiding CGI, if he can, there's a lot of puppet work. They'd have to be because it's not so easy to CGI onto film. Oh, I see. Well, film, as it goes through the shutter, Mm. it rattles. Now, this is only a tiny fraction of an amount. But if you were to go through film frame by frame on a sort of really large screen in sort of HD quality, as you advance through the frames, you'd see the picture in each frame, just a slight, tiny, tiny fraction of amount out of place in each picture. Oh, clever. Because the film rattles through, basically rattles through the the machine as the film goes through it, passes through it. So when you record on digital, you don't have that effect, right? Because there's not a mechanical operation taking place. So digital pictures are absolutely steady. I would imagine what they would do, though, if they did use CGI, they would have a map point. Yes, exactly. Exactly, yeah. 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 <clears throat> but having said that, that is an extra expense mm. because if you don't have to map it, you know you're saving self, you're saving yourself that bother. Mm. Mm. So I would imagine that because he's recorded it on film, that is just another reason to avoid digital effects if possible. Yeah, and obviously avoiding digital effects is the same choice as choosing to record it on film rather than on digital media, because you know he's obviously chosen film to get that quality that was in the original movies mm. so why would you go with digital effects then because the originals didn't have i'm talking about you know the first trilogy yeah yeah didn't have uh do you know um this may interest you seeing as we're talking about this kind of thing this is more like a star wars radio podcast than a Doctor Who <laughs> podcast george lucas obviously you know his first film was thx yes and then his second film do you know what his second film was american graffiti yeah now, do you know what he did with American Graffiti? Uh, remind me. I've, I've read his biography, so... Oh, have you? Yeah. Okay, so this will probably be of interest. See, okay, you need a little bit of film history here to appreciate this. 
and probably a little bit more than film history, probably a bit of film school as well. You know, the right, most people's televisions these days are 16 by 9. Yeah. But most people's televisions in the old day was 4 by 3. Yeah. Do you remember watching old television movies? And sometimes when you're watching movies, you'd get the microphone at the top of the screen. Yes. And you think, are they idiots? Could they not see the microphone was at the top of the screen? Mm. Right. What used to happen with cinema exhibition, film, mm. the actual physical thing that passes through the camera, mm. is four by three. Right. When television appeared and started becoming popular in the 50s, mm. because films had always been made in four by three, because why wouldn't you? That's the shape of film. Yeah. When television started becoming popular in the 50s, mm. filmmakers thought, oh my God, they're competing with us here. What can we do? And first they tried 3D. Yeah. And 3D is always, every time it turns up, it's short-lived because it's a bit gimmicky, really. You can't really do, you can't really do it justice. It never really works that well. So first they tried 3D and then they said, okay, this ain't going for us. Then they decided to do widescreen. So there was Cinemascope, Panavision. No, no, no. Before you get there. Oh, right. Okay. Before you get there, you get to 16 by 9. Yeah. And it's very quick transition. A very quick progression between the two, but what happens with sixteen by nine is they don't suddenly start making film that's wider. Film is still four by three. That's just the shape of film, right? So right. what you do is you film it in four by three, mm. but when you exhibit it at the cinema, you put a mask onto the projector that chops off the top of the picture and the bottom of the picture, so it looks wider. Yeah. But actually, it's not wider, it's narrower yeah, vertically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And of course, by doing that, you can have the microphone at the top of the picture because the mask is taking it off. But then, yeah, yeah. when these films that have been filmed in 4x3 but exhibited in 16x9 at the cinema go back to telly, mm. because telly's still 4x3, they take the mask off and all of a sudden there's the microphone again. So in the 50s, when this is happening, they're experimenting with different sizes, different sizes of mask. Mm. So in America, they pretty soon settled on the 16 by 9 one or 1.85 by 1. In Europe, they settled on 1.66 by 1. So European movies are actually slightly more close to 4 by 3, mm. not quite as wide as 16 by no, 9. But, no. yeah. but obviously they experimented with other sizes. And you know the one that's most popular now, but it wasn't the only one. It's two point three five by one. Yes. Yeah. So they also invented because you know this is a period of invention to try and counteract the loss of cinema audiences that television is causing. Experimented with what became anamorphic cameras. Yes. Okay. So what happens in an anamorphic camera? Mm, it's like it's a little bit like long lens mm. works kind of the same way as a long lens what it does is the lens is designed so that the picture coming into the camera gets squeezed yeah so instead of having the mask at the top of the bottom yeah what you do is have a wider picture squeezed onto four by three yeah so that when you project it you have to sort of reverse anamorphize it yeah so that you spread the picture back out again right which is what your television does yes because yeah. when you watch a dvd actually it's a four by three picture that the television Zooms outwards. Yeah, yeah. So anamorphic cameras did that, and then they tried larger anamorphic and what they uh, and various other things. They would 
do 16 by 9 and put the mask on 16 by 9 so that when six so when the 4 by 3 picture that's already been squeezed into 16 by 9 and then has a mask on which kind of double 16 by 9s it <laughs> when it's projected it's 2.35 by 1 mm. so this became the popular way of doing widescreen if you're doing wide widescreen you'd use anamorphic lenses okay which gave you a better picture quality yes because you're squeezing you get more pic- information in. yeah, yeah. But yep. what George Lucas did, because American Graffiti was set in the 50s, yep. even though he was making it in the 70s, when anamorphic lenses are now kind of industry standard for mm. people wanting to do wide, widescreen movies, mm. he says, right, we won't do that. What we'll do is we'll do it the old-fashioned way. And actually, he filmed it in 4x3 and put a 2.35x1 mask on it so it's got a really <laughs> grainy picture. Brilliant, brilliant. That's not, there's an irony to that, isn't there? Yeah, but it's but you I've know, got it in the cupboard in there on DVD. I haven't watched it in ages. I'm oh yeah, it. yeah. American Graffiti looks gorgeous. Yeah, it's and lovely. that's the reason why because grain is beautiful. Mm. It gives it gives a film a quality that you just don't get with digital. No, no, that's the real problem with those first three Star Wars films, the prequel series. Yeah, yeah. Pardon me. They all just look way too clean, don't they? Mm, mm. I agree. I mean, you, well, apart from the first one, actually, the first one looks oh, does strangely it? looks better in that respect. Yeah, oh, it was, really? It was only the second two that were Attack of the Clones was the first fully digital. Ah, really? Movie. Right. Yeah. yeah, that would explain it. Mm. It's been years since I've watched them, even though it's a better movie. Attack of the Clones. Yeah, mm. they they improved as they went along. They, yeah, not my thing. They're really no. Honest. I know. I know. Again, they're great fun, but find it very hard to actually get something out of them no no, i can appreciate that anyway what were we talking about when we got down that road i can't remember we were talking about were we talking about santa oh we were talking about simon Pegg because i said there's simon Pegg in the very first series of doctor who with christopher eccleston yeah and here's i think that's a shame because i think he's kind of been wasted I think he could have played a better character at some point. Probably could, because the character he played, he was cast against type, and let's be honest, he doesn't do that episode any favours. No, no. And that episode doesn't do him any favours either. I mean, it's far from a disaster, but it's not From his point of view, it's probably like, Doctor Who's come back, we don't know how long it's going to last, they're offering me this part. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Of course, Nick Frost, his first role, TV role, was spaced. He'd never done TV before. No, I can't. Or no acting that, at yeah. all, yeah. So. He was just his mate who brought in, really, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah, his best mate. And that, But then he's now he's got 20 years nearly of experience. So He's <laughs> mad. Yeah. But anyway, my, the point I was making was there's Simon Pegg right at the start and here's Nick Frost, Nick Frost basically at the 10th anniversary because this episode is going to be the one that's closest to the anniversary unless there is an Easter special. But I've been assured there's not. Yeah. So this is basically Doctor Who's 10th anniversary here and Nick Frost. So that's a nice little bit of mm. symmetry, I think. Mm. Mm. Anyway, Nick Frost told the Radio Times that his Santa Claus has a history with the Doctor. So it's not like they've not met before. No, OK. Which would also explain that sort of slight conversation and looks they're giving each other on the rooftop in that preview clip. <laughs> he says it's not talked about explicitly, but they have a beef with each other from way back. Mm. He says, my Santa is cross, mean and curt, as well as cheery and funny. He's got a little bit of Robert De Niro in Mean Streets. And a bit Roman Briggs as well. Do you think? If that's the case, yeah. 
Mind you, he's not mean. He is a grumpy sod, though. The one in the um, in the snowman. No, in the uh, Father Christmas book. There's also oh, I don't a know Father that. Christmas book. Yeah, I don't know it. There's an animation of it with Mel Smith doing the voice. Oh, really? Yeah. That's not a million miles away from Nick Frost, really, is it? It's not. No, no. Oh, I can see that. Yeah. I'll lend you the DVD. We've <laughs> got it's another one of the children's favourites. It's all. It's all on the same <clears throat> DVD as the Snowman. Doing a grumpy Santa, good idea or bad idea? Um, do you know what? When the book came out, because there was a book comic strip, same as the Snowman and same as um, was the Snowman a book? Yeah, yeah. I mean, mm. I know, and Fungus the Bogeyman was, but yeah, in the book, the, I, all I remember from it is the fact you saw Father Christmas sitting on the toilet, and we thought that'd be great <laughs> as a kid. I don't remember him being that grumpy though. He seems really grumpy in the cartoon. But to, having a grumpy Santa. You know, when you think about it, most of these Christmas films that have a Santa in them, they're usually pretty grumpy, aren't they, actually? Yeah. It, basically, doing a grumpy Santa, who's still doing good things, but perhaps not doing it with the best of graces, turns what could be a really dull character yeah. into a really fun character, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Mm. They could have done Santa in Doctor Who and done him nice as pie. Well, and yeah, it, the sort who advertises soft drinks. But doing a grumpy Santa opposite a grumpy doctor, that's a recipe for a lot of comedy. Yes. It's interesting as well, they've got him in red as well, but um, that's another one of those urban myths, isn't it? Isn't it an urban myth about... Um... Well, it's the Coca-Cola thing, isn't oh, it? Oh, you said the soft drink, yeah. But I I, I was taught that at, at college. I nearly said design school then. I suppose it was school. <clears throat> we were told that, that that's the reason why he's red. It's because of a Coca-Cola campaign, but I've since been told it's an urban myth. I don't know. I thought it was true. Maybe not. Mm. I assumed it was. It's, it's one of those national, things. You know, it's probably down to the country, isn't it? Because other countries will have them in green, which I think makes a lot more sense, really. But it probably does. Mm. Yeah, but obviously, the Santa myth comes from Saint Nicholas, doesn't it? Mm. Mm. Obviously, Santa in Santa Claus being Saint and Claus being Nicholas. Saint Nicholas. Oh yes, yes. Ah, you didn't realise. Well, yeah, these things go past me, go over my head. So, to have somebody whose name is actually Nicholas playing Saint Nick, that's kind of nice too, I yeah. think. Yeah, yeah. So, mm. so, there's a few more quotes from Peter Capaldi, and then we're pretty much done with everything we know about Christmas. <laughs> um, I can't remember which ones I've read out, but Peter Capaldi told What's On TV, it's a rather clever episode because it's incredibly festive and jolly, but also quite terrifying. I'd say it's one of the scariest Christmas adventures ever. Which, well, that that seems quite promising to me. Yeah, that's the thing I want to talk about, really. I mean, what is the job of the Christmas episode? Because it's been various things, isn't it? I mean, well, sometimes the, in... it's been an introduction. Yeah. And sometimes it's been a farewell. Mm, mm. I'm, and because it looks like Clara's in it, but I'm assuming she won't be next year. Although there was a rumour in one of the daily papers had said that she'd changed her mind and was now going to come back for half the next series. Which sounds like rubbish, doesn't it? Yeah. It's, it's all a bit lukewarm, isn't it? If she's pregnant, mm. and this is just pure idle speculation, if she's pregnant with... Um, Danny Pink's baby, right? Mm. So that obviously you can carry on the line so that eventually you can have Orson Pink. If she's pregnant with Danny Pink's baby and he's now going to be brought up, you know, with one of his parents missing, mm. she's not going to go back off travelling with the doctor, right? No. So 
I'm assuming from that scene in Dark Water where we see the post-it notes, mm-hmm. I'm assuming at that point she thinks she's pregnant. I would have thought so, yeah. Rather than knows she's pregnant. And Yeah, otherwise she wouldn't have written the date down, would she? Or the time. Mm. The timing wouldn't be an issue. It would be like... So at this point she thinks she's pregnant. Mm. Then you go through Dark Water and Death in Heaven and then Danny's gone. And then she finds out for sure that she is pregnant. Mm. So that when the Doctor comes back in this Christmas episode, again, this is still all pure speculation, she can have this one last adventure because she's already caught up in it because he's turned up. But by the same token, uh, you wouldn't carry on again afterwards. Okay, I'm going to throw a bit of speculation your way, Simon. And this is pure speculation. Santa crashes on her roof. Okay. That's a coincidence. Well, yeah, it's only a coincidence if well, obviously it's this. <laughs> obviously, it's a dramatic coincidence yes, because yes. drama doesn't happen without dramatic coincidence. Why would Santa be visiting Clara? So I see to bring the. I think this episode set several years in the future when Danny Pink's yeah. progeny is now an actual child. Oh, that'd be and good. I don't know, but I said this before, I wouldn't be remotely surprised if the episode ended with, you know, the adventure finishing and mm. the Doctor and Clara in the TARDIS and then suddenly the picture dissolves into Clara, into, the, you know, the Doctor and Clara in the TARDIS. Then you get a shot from the exterior of the TARDIS with it going through the time vortex or whatever, mm. and then that picture devol- devol- dissolves into a still drawing of the TARDIS on the front of a book that as the camera pans back, you see Clara is reading to the three-year-old Danny Pink's child in the cot, and it turns out that the whole thing was just a story that Clara was telling. I wouldn't be surprised if that happened. Not saying I and expected that's the, And that's the happen. question you're left with, did it happen or did it not happen? Yeah. Did it happen or didn't it? And... And that's the end of Clara's story because Brilliant. Brilliant. Clara's story actually finishes in Death and Heaven, doesn't it? Yeah. That is a very much a full stop. Yeah. So this is a way that's to have... That's why I was a little bit disappointed when I heard she was coming back. But if exactly. it is literally just a glimpse into her future, that's, that's lovely. And it could or could not be something that actually happened. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'd do. That Maybe my predictions lovely. about what Stephen Moffat's going to do are actually less predictions about what he'd do rather than <laughs> they are about what I'd do. Yeah. But yeah. I think that's how I'd do it. Yeah, I know. That, that, that would be absolutely lovely. And that way you get And that's to, really Christmassy. Yeah. You get really the best of both worlds. And yeah, that would be a lovely Christmas scene at the end. Yeah. Mm. And all the kids who've been terrified watching it at quarter past six on a Christmas Day evening get to the end of it and they see Clara just reading this story and oh, it's like oh and I would love to see the forums afterwards and argue over whether it's canon or not yeah yeah oh yeah. yes bring it on Mr Moffat bring it on <laughs> as I say six days after this podcast goes out or however long it is people are going to be laughing at us Simon now it's going to be more than six days it's going to be about ten days mm-hmm. okay, quickly say Jenny Shirt met um, well a few of our friends did but Jenny Shirt met um, Santa no Peter Capaldi Oh really? Yeah. Oh, at the uh, at the Motormouth, wasn't it? I d- I didn't know she'd gone, but I'm assuming that's it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, I think she did. Or am I getting mixed up? Oh no, it wouldn't surprise me. I haven't seen I the pictures of it. Mm. All right. Let's get back to the quotes. Peter Capaldi says, <laughs> "Uh." 
And there's one more quote that I think I'll bring up. And he says, there's something quite profound that happens to Clara in this story, but of course I can't go into that. Mm. Maybe the story is where she finds out she's pregnant. Or she has the baby. No, not I wouldn't have thought so, not in Doctor Who. That would be... Well, don't you think that would just be a bit too much? Well, as far as a Christmas story is concerned? Yeah, actually having a baby. I don't know. I suppose it would tie in with um, the Christmas story, the very, very original Christmas story. <laughs> but I'm not entirely sure they'd put that on screen in Doctor Who on Christmas Day. <laughs> <clears throat> That's a bit brutal. Mm, mm. You couldn't do it. <clears throat> in the modern day and age, I don't think you could do a birth like that without it being brutal. No. no. So... No, I couldn't quite see it going that far. I could see it being the episode where she hasn't confirmed that she's pregnant. Yeah, maybe so. And then that would give you a, give her a reason for reading that story to the child at the end. Yeah. This is, you know, this is what happened when I found out you were coming along. Mm, mm. We'll have to see. We have a stinking dog in the room. We do have a stinking dog in the room. It smells strangely like baby beans. I'm not oh, you're talking sure. about the actual dog? Yeah, the actual dog. Oh, okay, I thought you were just. I thought you were oh, yeah, yeah. self-deprecating. <laughs> oh dear. <clears throat> well, that's it. That's our Christmas preview. Are we going to have a quick word? Is his left hand? It's his left hand, is it? <laughs> that wasn't his hand. That was. Oh, I see. You pressed the wrong thing, and he's hand is funny. Yeah. Should we have Mark Cockrammers? Marcus Cockrammers. Yes. Yes. Don't just stand there, man. Get it out. Get it out. Brilliant. Then we'll have, um, you know, the reason Sid Brett. Yeah. Did I say this at the start? You did, yeah. The reason I've brought him along is just to prove that you and he aren't actually the same person. He was in um, Pink Floyd, wasn't he? Sid Brett, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, but before that, he was in the Carry On team. Oh, right, okay. And now he's on the Blue Box podcast. Good man. Yeah. Here he is. One final time. <laughs> All right. Um, I don't know, there was something else I was going to go into, but it's so miserable. Do you fancy a bit of Christmas misery or yeah, not? Yeah, go on, let's get out of the way. Okay. Just after after Death in Heaven went out, mm. there were so many people I, I heard on podcasts and I read on forums and everywhere else who had problems with particular aspects of it. Mm-hmm. And they were saying it doesn't make any sense. This particular thing doesn't make any sense. That particular thing doesn't make any sense. Mm. And I just answered some of those, but, you know, in a place where only a few people would read it. And I just thought anybody who listens to this podcast who didn't see my answer to some of those things and is struggling with some of those things, is it worth bringing up some of those things and saying what I think here and now? Which in order to perhaps help them enjoy the episode a bit more? Yeah. Well, you're not telling them they're wrong. You're, you're just saying, well, actually, this, this is, is how, how makes, I saw it. This is how it makes sense in my head. Yeah. Well, for instance, one complaint I saw rather a lot was the dark water and the rain. Why mm. is the rain turning bodies in the ground into Cybermen? Mm. Or, and also, more frequently voiced, what's the point of having the dark water you know, uh, that hides the electronic bits so that you can only see the bones. They're saying, what's the point of that? Mm. And, you know, my answer to that is, this is Stephen Moffat, right, who wrote The Empty Child with his sort of nano 
whatever they're called in there, nanobots mm. or nanogenes mm. or yep. nanobites or something. He and he did silence in the library as well, where you've got the stuff in the shadows. Mm-hmm. He writes lots of stories that involve nanotechnology that to all intents and purposes looks like magic right mm-hmm. so it doesn't take a huge leap of the imagination knowing that he wrote this story that the dark water is not just hiding the sort of bits of metal and bits of plastic so that you can own like an x-ray thing but the the dark water is actually filled with nanotechnology that creates the cybermen in the first place yes I mean, that seemed really obvious to yeah. me. Yeah. And then when they go up in the sky and they cause the rain that goes into the graveyards, that rain is the dark water. Mm. That seemed really obvious to me, that the rain is made of the same water as is in those tanks. Yeah. So that when the rain goes into the ground, mm. it's got those nanotechnology in it that build the Cybermen around these corpses. That just seemed really obvious to me. But yeah. I, a lot of people seem to be questioning the logic of it. And while well, if you think of the first stage, I mean, my initial thought was, oh, I know I came up with the idea. How cool would it be if you had, as the water went down, you saw the Cyberman, and you saw it was a way of seeing inside the yeah, suit. Yeah. So you know, yeah, visually, it's a brilliant idea. Yeah, it's one of Stephen Moffat's, but it's fairly typical ideas. Yeah, but rationalised, it, it's it's a bit like the Bacta tank in the Empire Strikes Back. Well, sorry, quoting Star Wars again. Yeah, but I mean, this is. This is something that people seem to forget. Television, and it's there in the very name, Mm. is a visual medium. Yeah. So, and especially in 45-minute episodes, I keep saying this on the podcast, but the reason I keep saying it on the podcast is because it's true. In a 45-minute episode, you have to take certain shortcuts to, uh, you know, take a... A story that takes place over a certain amount of time that is much greater than 45 minutes and sort of squeeze it down into 45 minutes to make it fit. Mm. And some of the shortcuts you you take, essentially what you're doing is asking the audience to fill in the gaps to a certain degree. And now, uh, some writers will spell everything out. And some writers will leave something to your imagination. And some writers will be a little bit ambiguous and ask you to make your own mind up. And I just think Stephen Moffat is one of those writers who prefers the latter two options. Mm, mm. And if you, if, you watch his sto- if you watch his stories and want them to make sense, they make perfect sense. Mm. But if you watch his stories and don't want them to make sense, because that ambiguity is there you can allow them not to make sense. Mm. Even though all the things you think don't make any sense, they're actually there. They're just not spelled out. No. Mm. And the dark water, which is, seemed really yeah. odd for me to have, a, for people to have a problem with that. I, I mean, unless there's there are people who also had a problem with the empty child and the resolution to that with the nanogenes or whatever they were called. Mm. Mm. But the, the, the water was there. The water's there in the first episode static and then in the second episode it actually comes down as rain and starts yeah. doing the same thing to all the dead bodies that it's done to all the ones in the tanks yeah it's simple it's not a huge leap of logic is it it's not no no i can kind of i can i can see why it was missed because it was there in tanks and then all of a sudden it's rain yeah and nobody actually says oh, it's it does, the same water it's strange yeah strange it wouldn't yeah wouldn't but then you'd think 
my God, it's still water. So why would you need it pointing out that it's the same water? Of course it's the same water. That's what the story's about. Mm. Mm. <clears throat> now, another thing is... Um, Clara, when the Doctor throws her the sonic screwdriver and she says to him, just point and think. Yep. When, and I brought this up in the podcast before, but let's um, elaborate on it a bit. Because we've seen the Doctor use the sonic screwdriver for so many things. And I've said so many times, the sonic screwdriver is pocket technology, like a mobile phone that has a million different functions. Yep. So does the sonic screwdriver. But we never see the Doctor changing the functions. No. There's no little keypad. No, it's not Jamie the Magic Torch. It's, um... So it's a yeah. piece of technology that is mind-activated, right? Mm, mm. Now, this is Califrayan technology. I mean, we have voice-activated technology now, only in its infancy, but we do... You know, you can buy televisions that you say, television on, and will turn themselves on, right? Mm. That's voice-activated technology. Is it that big a leap of imagination for Gallifreyans to have mind-activated no. technology? There's been this thing, isn't it? Um, the sonic screwdriver has been since the 11th hour, uh, that the sonic screwdriver is as much part of the TARDIS as anything else. Yeah. So you've got that that mental link, haven't you? It all makes perfect sense. Yeah. I mean, it, what, what it does, is, it's one of those things that the new series has done, and there's been loads of instances of this, and Russell T. Davis did several, but Russell T. Davis has tended to be character ones, whereas Stephen Moffat tend to be technology ones, where you say, what did the old series do that was never really properly explained? Okay, let's just give it a little explanation. Like, where does the sonic screwdriver come from? Oh, there's a little slot in the TARDIS. And, you know, if it gets bust, the TARDIS can just replicate it. Yep. So... But it's something he already fixed, isn't he? Uh, after the Terraleptal episode, if he suddenly decided he wanted another one, he's going to build it into the TARDIS, isn't he? God knows he's got time to do it. Yeah, and besides the TARDIS... I mean, this is retconning, but wouldn't the TARDIS be fitted with, you know... A sonic screwdriver replicator yeah yeah because it just makes sense if time lords are out there in the universe doing stuff they're going to need the sonic screwdriver because it has all these useful functions <laughs> so why wouldn't they have that i thought it was lovely in the 11th hour the fact that it gave him a new sonic screwdriver at the same time as it gave him a new tardis i just thought that was lovely and it was mm. almost like you know that's his bat cave that's his the tardis gives him what he needs yeah yeah absolutely yeah. it'll just i just <clears throat> I can't see how it doesn't make sense. No. Hmm. Okay, a few other people, things. Unless you don't want it to make sense. Yeah. Oh, well, it says... Well, there was the complaint. We talked about this, about the don't cremate me line and the body horror thing. Mm. About me seeing as an update of the original spare parts body horror thing because spare parts these days are kind of ten a penny. So mm. if you were going to try and do the body horror thing you needed to find a new way to bring that into the cyber sort of mythology mm. and i and that's what stephen moffat's done he's yeah. found a new way to bring that sort of aspect to the cybermen something that had basically been missing almost mm. since their very first appearance that's been missing yeah some people have tried to pay a bit of lip service to it attack of the cybermen tries to and here's Stephen Moffat properly updating it and properly giving body horror a new lease of life for the Cybermen. Mm. I thought that was exceptional. 
Another complaint, or not necessarily a complaint, a question, how does this work? Right, when people die, I've seen several points about this. One of the points about this was we see that um, half-faced man in deep breath has been on planet Earth for X number of thousands of years or whatever, and it's before he crashes that he's been looking for the promised land. Mm. So how does he know about the promised land? Has Missy really been on Earth all those thousands of years, you know, putting this plan into operation? Mm. That question seems to forget the fact that she's got a time machine, and there's actually a line in the story that says she's been using the time machine to go backwards and forwards. Mm. So... But the point there is she has this sort of matrix technology. And I think some people were a bit confused about how they're uploading the minds of people as they die into the nether sphere before downloading them back into the Cyberman. And it's obviously the case that the Cyberman can't function properly without a working mind in it, Mm. which is a logical interpretation of what they were talking about in 10th Planet because Mm. they were replacing the body, not the mind. Yep. But then uh, it becomes apparent during the rest of the 60s stories that they've eradicated emotions. Mm. Stephen Moffat's version of the Cybermen actually shows us them eradicating the emotions and it shows us keeping the mind. Yes. But what it's done is, instead of taking living people and turning them into Cybermen, it's taking dead people and turning them into Cybermen, but they still need the mind. Yeah. So at the point of death... It's an operating system. Yeah. So at the point of death, you take the mind out of the body, mm. then you turn the body into a Cyberman. Mm. Then once it's a Cyberman and the body's reanimated, you mm. can put the mind back into it and the mind won't die. Yeah. Because if you left the body, the mind in the body as the body died, the mm. mind would die with the body. Yeah. And because we've seen things like the Deadly Assassin, Mm. in which the Time Lords have the Matrix, into which they download all the Time Lords' minds at the point of a Time Lord's death, we know that Time Lords have the technology to upload a mind to a Matrix. So what Stephen Moffat's done is really go back through a lot of Doctor Who history (laughs) and the absolute opposite of being unfaithful to it, he's been really, really faithful to it. Mm, mm. And some people have been like quite shocked at how unfaithful he's being when it actually he's been picking out all these yeah. things that have always been true in Doctor Who and that we'd never really uh, thought about before. Yeah, you know, it's been that the, the Matrix can be, even the Trial of the Time Lord show, the Matrix can be hacked as well and can be altered. So any any mind that's in there can be altered. They can do this delete button, which essentially, as I say, it's like an operating system, isn't the mind? So you're taking it back to, do you want mm. to return to factory settings? Do you want to forget all your desktop settings and all your personal settings? And these people are saying, yes, I do. Yeah, yeah. But interesting as well, from an emotional point of view, that it has to be of free will. They don't just do it. They have to agree to it. It's almost like a little reference to the Wicker Man. Oh, is it? Have you seen The Wicker Man? I've never seen The Wicker Man. Okay, I'm not going to tell you how it ends, but at the end of the story, one of the turning points of it is everything he does to get him to where he needs to be has to have been of his own free will. Right, okay. It's a really important point at the end of the movie. Right, I've got a couple of things else here written down, but both of them we've covered in recent episodes, so I'm not going to do any more. I think that's enough miserableness for the end of our Christmas episode. (laughs) Hope you've enjoyed our Christmas party, Simon. Yeah, is there anything you've asked for Christmas then, Doctor Who related? 
Um, do you do you get bought Doctor Who related stuff, or do you buy it all yourself? Is that something you have to rely on? Well, what happens is I buy it myself, don't open it when it comes, give it to the missus, and she'll wrap it up and give it to me. Ah, okay. To make Fair sure. I, I know, but she also buys me lots of stuff, and yeah. she'll buy me stuff that I like. But say, for instance, I'd never buy myself. I don't know a Doctor Who pen. Yeah, she might buy me a Doctor Who pen because she knows I'd never buy a Doctor Who pen. But that if I was given one, I'd like it, right? Yes, yes. So I don't have a Doctor Who pen. That was just an example off the top of my head. But that you don't have a Doctor Who pen, no. But the thing that I bought myself this year is the um, Matt Smith regeneration five-inch figure. Oh, gorgeous! Which is the because it's expensive. I wanted to buy two. Yeah. In fact, I wanted to buy three so I could have all three. The three figures with the three different heads, because it comes with three different heads. Oh, okay. It's got Matt Smith young yep. in his costume from the last story. Yeah. Old Matt Smith with his costume from the last story. Yeah. And Peter Capaldi head with his costume from the last story. Uh... So once I open that, he'll have the Peter Capaldi head on until they release an actual Peter Capaldi five-inch figure, mm. at which point it will revert to Matt Smith old head. <laughs> but there, uh, that's my Doctor Who Christmas present. Oh, lovely, lovely. I'm hoping about, my I'm hoping gone. my sisters managed to get hold of a copy of the um, anniversary bo- uh, Blu-ray box set oh, because okay. they sold incredibly quickly. Did you know, they? The limited one, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was got very to the point limited. where she went to buy it for me and couldn't get one. I oh. was seriously upset. I thought, oh no, because oh. she left it thinking, not realizing it was limited edition. But I think she managed to get hold of a copy. I don't think she had to import it because I know a few copies have gone down to Australia. Well, then, even though it sold incredibly quickly, a lot of those will have been bought by people who were then going to put it up on eBay or whatever. Yeah, she was lucky. I think she got it back down to its original mm. RRP. Not that yeah. officially they're supposed to have one now, are they? Um, they did have an RRP. Did it? Yeah, yeah. That's I think it. their advisory used to be that there was a recommended retail price. This is back when I worked. It's still in... called a recommended retail price. Is it? Yeah, because it is advisory. It's recommended. It's not. Um, no, you have to sell it. It's the recommended. There was a time when I worked in an electrical shop. We had to stop putting them on the tickets. We used to put RRP, and of course, we would give the price and then say how much of a saving it was on the RRP. Oh we yeah, had, we had to stop doing that. Well, that's, that's probably somebody being just a little bit too paranoid. I don't know. Or there's, maybe there's, there's a difference. A, there's a thing about sales. Mm. You're not allowed to advertise something as being on sale unless it's been. Um, available at the price it's on sale. That's from. right. That was that we had to change them to. We had to, yeah, we but the recommended previous selling price PSP. Yeah, you can't have that if it hasn't been sold at the previous no, selling price. No. Mm. But you can have the recommended selling price. Yeah, yeah. I tell you what, though, that um, another thing I did. My sister-in-law is happy to just says, "What do you want for Christmas, Simon?" Or ask my sister, my wife, what I want for Christmas. And every year I just say, "Give me some classic not two DVDs," because I still haven't got them all. And what's really nice is that I always find these places where they sell them for just less than a fiver. And I just give them a list and say, right, pick some out of that. And a certain shop, which is related to the company that puts out Doctor Who, I'm not going to say without us. Why? Can I say the BBC shop then? Yeah, why not? Oh, because I just thought I didn't know whether we we aligned ourselves with any... You're not aligning yourself with it by just naming it. All right, BBC shop. I've got loads of Doctor Who DVDs for less than a fiver. No, why wouldn't you say that? Yeah, and they got the war games for a very, very low price. Nice. Well, but she didn't pick that one out apparently. So I've asked. I think one of the one of the daughters are going to get that for me for Christmas. Finally. 
Well, especially after what happened next week. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's say what's going to happen next week. Go on then. Uh, well, next week is not going to be a regular podcast. Next week is the Blue Box Christmas podcast. You know, I did that one last year as a one-off. And then this year, about the start of November, I thought, no, I've got to do it again. So it's going to be a thing now, isn't it? Mm, mm. So next week is a selection of different podcasters. There's the four of us mm. and I think 11 other people, each picking their comfort Doctor Who story. Mm, mm. So tune in next week to hear us and 11 other podcasters, some of whom you'll know, perhaps some that you won't know, uh, choosing their comfort Doctor Who story and a 37-minute long Easter egg at the end of the episode. What? Which I shall not reveal. You'll have to find out by listening to the Blue Box podcast next week. But it's something rather nice. I think it's something rather nice. I think it's something that people will appreciate. Mm. So we'll leave it there for now. Well, Merry Christmas, Simon. Merry Christmas, Joe. That didn't come out very well. I'm so tired. I do apologise. Right. (laughs) We'll leave it there then. Okay. We'll get to bed. I need a break, a Christmas break. Well, you'll have one. I will. Our next podcast together will be the review of the Christmas episode, and that will be coming out about a week after Christmas. Ooh. So until then, uh, I was JR. And I was Simon. Merry Christmas. (laughs) Merry Christmas, and we'll speak again soon.